0: We get to read and study God's Word this morning. What a great privilege, together corporately. So let's read this. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be sermoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn from limb to limb. And your houses shall be laid to ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered a second time, O king, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. And the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing from any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Let me just say one thing before we're seated. We're going to see a great contrast today. What's it like to have a kingdom where there's no recognition at all of God And what's it like to have a kingdom to be a part of that, to come to understand what we just celebrated a while ago. So the the enchanters are like, there's, there's not any of our gods, but there is a God who can know that. And he's the living God and he is our God. And he can know, he knows everything and can do everything. And we will see today this great contrast of the gods of the world. So today I want to talk about the great, the weakness of the gods of culture, the gods of the world, and the greatness of our God. As a kid, I could not wait to get home, to get home, television on, and watch an episode or two of Scooby Doo. Um, that was one of my Monday through Friday rituals. Later in life, a smaller dog was added. wasn't a big fan of scrappy Doo, but. He was at it and would watch that from time to time. Several years ago, I was able to, um, I don't know where I was. I don't know if it was in the hospital. I have no idea where I was, if it was in the middle of the night. But I watched an episode of Scooby-Doo. It came back on, and I thought of my childhood and thoroughly enjoyed the half hour of watching that as I pondered moments of my childhood afternoons growing up. And as I watched it, I noticed something that was a part of every single episode, if you know about the show at all. Scooby-Doo and Shaggy lived in fear every single episode. There wasn't one episode that there wasn't a moment during the middle of the show that they were like, I don't know what the future holds, and they were just and for just little did they know that somebody always had a solution. What was the solution? What did they need? Oh my gosh, am I the only one who grew up watching Scooby Doo? They needed a Scooby what? Snack. So they needed a Scooby snack. Sometimes one was enough. Sometimes that wasn't enough. Sometimes they needed up to three Scooby snacks to kind of help them deal with things. That allowed them to be motivated to kind of face and work through what they were facing with their fear and timidity. But again, there was never a time that that didn't happen in any of the episodes. I thought about that instance, and I thought about our lives as well, is that there are many Christians who need a blessing, who need something to help keep them moving forward in their faith, to move them past their fears. For some, it's not enough just to know God and to, to know the reality that He has made us, He has created us, He has come to die for us, They need a little bit more, and what we're going to see today is that we're going to see Daniel and also his three friends, that God was enough for them. They didn't need anything else. Living in a pagan culture, living in a culture that had other plans for them, they were able to maintain their faith in spite of everything that was against them to continue and to maintain their faith. So in Daniel chapter 1, it showed us Daniel's obedience. Today in Daniel chapter 2, we will see aspects of Daniel's faith. And then in Daniel 3, it will unveil the non-compliance at times that we must have as Christians to not buy into the pressure. So today we're going to see this great contrast in the lives of those who do not know God and are confused about what is around them. So therefore, they do not have peace. They do not have direction. They don't know what to do with life. They are unsettled. And we will see the great contrast of those whose lives are settled because they know God. And this is the critical aspect that we will see today. So let's get into this, Daniel chapter 2. And I want to talk first of all about the troubled spirit of a lost world. We just read it a while ago in Daniel 2, verses 1 through 11. You know, when you look closely at our world, its philosophy says things like this. Make your own way. Depend upon yourself. Figure it out for yourself. Trust yourself because ultimately you cannot rely on and trust anyone else. Rely on your money. Rely and trust your feelings. Make sure you've got the right connections and personality to kind of get you through. Exert your power over people. This is a popular one today, make your own truth because you can have your own truth. And everything that I just spoke there has one common theme, and it's this, it's all man-centered. And this is the way of our world, it is the philosophy of our world. And much of the issue that we see around us in our day continues to place us at the center of things. For our understanding in all of this, but ultimately it comes down to is, is this question, what do we do when our trusting in of ourselves is not enough anymore? And we know that there's a weakness. We know that there's an understanding that is not going to allow us to continue to move forward with God. And so the text tells us that one night Nebuchadnezzar goes to sleep, another night he goes to sleep, and he has a consistent dream. These dreams reveal to him something that rocks his world, and he doesn't understand what he's saying. He's seeing what's being communicated in the dream, and He is shaken to the very core of His being. Have you been there before? Where there's just situations in our lives that shake us to the point that we are unsettled about things. We don't know what's around the corner, what's going to come, and how do we trust, how do we navigate through this? And I'm convinced that the world lives with what we see in the beginning of Daniel chapter 2. The world is troubled where it cannot ultimately find anything to settle its heart in what it is doing. And so the dream reveals a great uneasiness and brings this into Nebuchadnezzar's life. He seems to know then in the dream, shows him that there is one who is stronger than him, and yet he doesn't have the understanding of what is there. And so he's troubled. I have three things I want to share initially this morning As you and I look at our world today, and particularly we look at just our American culture, it it reveals three specific reasons why the world is so unsteady. And I think you'll recognize these. The first one is simply this. There is a failure in our world today connected to human power. It's not an answer to anything. Here we have... In his generation, the most powerful man alive of his day, and none of his power, none of his authority, none of his military might, none of his reputation can force peace down inside of his heart so that he could come to a place where he is not fearful of the future and what's happening and taking place. His mind is churning, his heart is confused, and all of his might cannot fix where he is. Now, this is a man of great authority and power. He built the great wall around the city of Babylon. He, was, he built a magnificent palace that he lived in and the kings after him lived in. In, the, in that part of Babylon, which is now Iraq, there was a great temple to their god, Marduk. He built this, this big temple dedicated to their god. He rules the land from the north to the south to the east and the west He is incredibly powerful. He ends up being mentioned in Scripture in eight books and 88 specific references. He is a great military leader and has great reputation. And he had the power, but he didn't have the peace. His high position could not come nor restore his peace. And all his might ultimately proved to him that he didn't have any might. For he couldn't sleep at night and he couldn't find the peace. Ultimately, he recognizes I'm weak because I cannot figure out and I don't understand what the future holds. You see, in the end, when you and I are left to our own devices, we ultimately see that we possess no power to give unto ourselves what we truly need. And this has been the case since Genesis chapter 3. But praise be to God is that He provided a solution that we celebrated a while ago. The Babylonian gods couldn't come. That's in 2.11. They couldn't come. They couldn't make anything known. But our God came and He made all things known. He came and drew near to us to show us who the Father is. To show us the way of salvation. He drew near. And there is a power in the world and many nations. And our nation, they still say, is the greatest nation on the earth. But we are a mess. And we still have great military power. We have great power as a country. But we are crumbling within because we have trusted on that power and not trusted in God. And when a nation does that, you have Babylon, you have our culture today. There is a failure of human power that cannot fix the heart of people. Second thing that Nebuchadnezzar comes to find out is that there's a failure of human wisdom. Not only is there a failure of human power, but there's a failure of human wisdom. So he recognizes, I can't get an answer to this dream, so I'm going to turn to my, my wisest men. The magicians, the enchanters. And I asked them to come in and, and see if they could give some insight in my troubled life. And so, we, did you read? Did you, did you notice a while ago? It's just kind of like this. Like, if you have a dream and you're married and, and you want to ask anybody in your house, hey, can y'all tell me what I dreamed about last night? Well, there's nobody in your house that can tell you what you dreamed about last night. It's inside you. So, this is Nebuchadnezzar. He's had these dreams. He asks his most wisest people, I want you to tell me the dream and its interpretation. And this is the only way that I will know that you have authority and that you know our gods. Is if you know exactly what I have been dreaming. And that has brought about the trouble in my heart. And so if these men, he's saying, are who they say they are. Then they can, watch this, supernaturally know the content of of his dreams. And he believes that that's the only way that he's going to be able to find peace for what he is facing. Now I want you to note what Nebuchadnezzar is longing for. He is longing for the supernatural. He knows that his might can't fix this. Now he sees that his leaders can't know anything and don't know anything. His gods can't give him an answer. And they had thousands of gods, the Babylonian gods. And so he turns to them and he puts pressure on them and he says to them, basically, I need something supernatural to take place. So desperate was he for an answer that he threatens to tear them from limb to limb if they cannot find the answer. And I tell you, this is one of the great issues, I believe, in our culture today. That our culture asks of people what they cannot deliver and what they cannot find on their own. God is the only answer. Jesus is our only hope. And I think our culture places on people this great task of trying to fix the lack of peace and this disruption, the heartache that seems to fill our lives in confusion and the buying of the lies. And it's impossible to do so. Our money can't fix that. Our power cannot fix that. The wisdom of our day and the wisdom of our time and our culture cannot fix that. It is the same. Only God can fix the heart and the mind of troubled people, right? Only God can do that. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar. He knows he needs something supernatural, but he doesn't have anybody in his life. His power is not enough. His wisdom is not enough. To do this, and this is one again the one of the great issues present in the world, is that our world asks of people what they cannot truly deli- to deliver to themselves, impossible tasks to find the answers to life's biggest questions. And I tell you today, there's a lot of voices out there that are saying a lot of things to the troubled soul of our nation, both political parties consistently offer laws and candidates and none of those laws and none of those candidates and none of those platforms have anything to do with Jesus Christ and his glory. And if that's going to continue to be the case and that's what's going to continue that, that both political parties or multiple political parties are just going to offer these kinds of things then, then there's never going to be anything offered that's going to bring any permanent change. Science Many people have turned to that, and there's a voice there, particularly in our day. There's a new religion. We'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute. It's called climate change, and it's a religion. I want to remind you and I that Romans chapter 1 still is applicable. That our world today still wants to worship the creation and the creature and not the creator. And there is a problem every single time in a culture where we worship The creation and the creature and not the creator. So don't buy the lie. God told man to subdue what? The earth, its resources, its supplies. Yes, we want to take care of what God has created. But there are things here that he's given to us to use for the betterment of mankind for the glory of God in acknowledging that. So again, there's, there's a lot of wisdom, so, so-called wisdom, that's being offered out there today about a number of different things. There's a growing trend in our culture today of atheism. Atheism doesn't bring about any answers to the deep questions. It just buries people in deeper darkness, in deeper confusion. Surprise, surprise that it cannot offer anything. And so I remind you and I this morning that as we come into this room this morning, there will always be a failure of human power to fix the heart of man. There will always be a failure of man's wisdom, of man trying to figure out things that's going to to fail people to find what they truly need. And you and I live in a day and time where we have the most detailed information in the history of the world, on things like health, on things like history, and learning things through archaeology, things that are there. We have the ability to know cause and effect better than we have ever come to know things. We can see instantly. I can, I can pull out my phone. I've got it right here. If we're an illustration, don't bring your phone into the pulpit, but I have an illustration in a minute. I could pull this up and I could see my brother who lives on the other side of the world and we could talk face to face. We, we have so much ability to have information and look at our world. Why? Because human wisdom cannot fix the troubled heart and mind of humanity. Man's wisdom in the end fails because it is not connected to the truth. So Nebuchadnezzar realizes, I don't have the power, and I'm the most powerful on earth. Can't can't do this. Now I'm turning to other people who are supposed to be spiritual, and they don't even know about the supernatural. They can't communicate anything that I need. And so now he sees there's a failure of human wisdom. And here's the third one. And ultimately, this is the big one. There was a failure in Nebuchadnezzar's life that his gods could not bring about the peace that he needed. I did some research this week. In ancient Babylon, there were 3,600 deities, 3,600 gods, little g gods, and not a single one of 3,600 gods could bring peace into Nebuchadnezzar's life. None of his most trusted Advisors who were supposed to know the intimacy of these gods, they couldn't, they didn't know the gods well enough. And the gods, there, did you notice? Look at verse 11 again. The thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods. But the problem, they recognize there's a problem with our 3,600 gods, there's a problem with the god Marduk that Nebuchadnezzar had built this big temple to. Here was the issue. The gods do not dwell among the people. They don't bring their presence amidst the Babylonian people. So our gods have felled us. They have felled us. The gods didn't know what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed and didn't have the power to communicate it to anyone. Their gods were not near. I'm so thankful. That one of my one of my great thoughts always in December every year, and I'm glad I lived, got to live to another December, and to and to just glory in this. Our God came near, and came in the most unusual way. He was about 20 inches long, about eight pounds and 10 ounces. How glorious is that? And he grew up knowing. What humanity was like at every age as a baby as a toddler as a preschooler in his teen years and as an adult so when we go to pray and we go to cry out to our God he doesn't go boy I, I can't relate to you we cry out to a God who understands every aspect of this humanity and understands it so well that he never gave in to any of the lies. And so we go to one who understands humanity, and he is the supreme God that we must trust in. What Nebuchadnezzar finds out, what the advisors found find out, is that the gods of the world don't care about anyone because they can't care. They're not real. So as we exalt things in our country today, thinking that they're going to bring about some kind of peace, they will not because they cannot care. They do not care. There's ultimately only one who cares, and that is the sovereign God of the universe who has revealed Himself as a Father, a Son, and the Spirit. And they love and they care. And they have gone to the nth degree to communicate that they love people And that people are invited into a relationship with God. And I tell you, the worst thing about idols is that they are completely useless when you need them. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's got 3,600 gods, and every single one of them are useless. But ultimately, this is how God works things. It is the failure of the gods of this world that will eventually reveal the greatness of our God. And that's what happens in the text. You see, our God is different. Let me share with you two verses just real quick. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity... Think about that for a second. How big is God? He inhabits eternity. Then Isaiah writes, whose name is Holy. And then he quotes what God says. I dwell in the high and holy place. So so listen to that. So he says, this one who fills up eternity, he dwells in the high and holy place because he's God. He's the exalted God. And yet, he does something very unique, different than the The gods of our culture, the 3,600 gods of the Babylonian culture, listen to what Isaiah says. So I dwell in the high and holy place, and then God says this, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God dwells in eternity. God dwells on high, and he dwells among people broken people who need God to do a work. One of the greatest sentences that has ever been written in the whole history of the world. I'll put it up there in the top 10. Listen to this sentence. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace in truth, our God has never been defeated. Our God reigns. Our God is trustworthy. And so Nebuchadnezzar is desperate for someone bigger than him to speak into his life, as his gods and his spiritual leaders and his military might has failed him. He has a huge issue. His power and his gods are no help. And I wonder now if his biggest concern is not the dream. It's the realization that his power, his wisdom, and his gods cannot give any counsel into his life. And for Nebuchadnezzar, this leads him into a very dark place and into a deadly rage. And the futility of his might, the lack of helpful wisdom, and the weakness of his false gods have pushed him over the edge. I want to show you what it looks like, that this is not a new idea, that the gods of the age, I want to show you, if you'll watch the stream, what it looks like to worship false gods. Notice him grabbing some rice. Can we watch it one more time? Because I want you to see the futility of what it's like to worship the Dallas Cowboys or the Green Bay Packers. Watch this. This is early morning. Tad and I were walking around in May in the city of Kathmandu. And every year I get when I'm there, I get up early in the morning and I go and I stand and I watch this same place and I see the same thing over and over again. Notice how impersonal that God is there. That God has no power that it has to rely on somebody else to get the rice, to throw onto the people, to bless them. It can't even move. It cannot talk. It cannot do anything. And this is where where you and I ought to just lift our hands right now that our God is not like that. He came to be near us. And He came to be in the midst of us. He speaks. He came near. He is coming again to be near. He brings us to Him his children, when this life is over with, we step into his presence. And those who know him, we will be with him forever, for all of eternity. And this is the trouble in Babylon. This is the trouble in America today. We have these kind of gods. Now, we don't have a lot of statues here. Some places in our country do. But I can walk anywhere in the nation of Nepal and I can see that. I can go at the top of a hill in Kathmandu to the monkey temple that has monkeys walking around that have these little statue gods in there that the monkeys go in and, and defecate on the gods. And the gods are so unholy that they can't clean themselves. They need sinful people to get water to clean them. And if we were, if we were worshiping money, we were worshiping power, whatever the case is, it's the same thing as this. It's absolutely futile. And so this is the trouble. Nebuchadnezzar's like, my power, my wisdom, my people's wisdom, and my 3,600 gods cannot fix my troubled heart. On June the 29th, 2007, a new God was entered into our culture. Anybody have an idea of what it was? June 29th, 2007. Anybody having a guess? Are we better because of this? Let's be honest. No. We are dumber, more distracted, more confused. And we look at this thing and, I, and we hold it as it, like it's precious. We hold this more than we hold this. Let's be honest. And so is it any wonder that we're troubled? That we can't sleep at night? And the great hope this morning is this is that our lives don't have to be like Nebuchadnezzar's. There is a hope that's there. And the hope comes now in this life of this guy named Daniel. And he has this incredible faithful life to, to be passionate about God and, and to walk with God. And, and so Daniel gets word and he hears that the, the king is mad. He's going to kill all of the enchanters and the wise men in the land, which includes Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're part of the leadership. They're going to be killed. And so Daniel hears about this. And so Daniel immediately does this. He, he asks the, the leader, okay, why is the king upset? What's the deal? He hears about it. And you know what Daniel immediately does? He goes to his three friends and he says, let's pray. What a novel idea. Let's pray and ask the living God who does hear, who does enter into the lives of people who can supernaturally reveal things. And so he goes to them, and, he, and verse 14 says, And Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And when he hears about this, Daniel, it says in verse 17, went to his house, and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he said, Guys, let's seek the mercy of, From the God of Heaven concerning the mystery, Daniel doesn't even know. He tells, he goes into Nebuchadnezzar's presence and says, "Hey, King, um, give me a date, and I'll and I'll tell you what you dreamed." He has such trust in God. So he goes to his friends and says, "Um, "Let's pray and ask God to reveal this mystery, because our God is not like the thirty six hundred gods. Our God is supernatural." Well, guess what God does. He reveals to Daniel exactly what it is. We don't have time to go through it. There's this big statue. It's got a golden head. It's got different aspects of the statue and it represents the coming kingdoms starting with Nebuchadnezzar. His head is gold. And now I want you to turn to chapter 3 now. And I want to talk about what Nebuchadnezzar does with this. In Daniel chapter 3 we see the Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits, 90 foot tall and 9 foot wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to to gather the satraps, prefects, and all these people, and they were going to come out to the plain of Dura for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 3 tells us, that all those people, important people, they gathered out there and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now look at verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, the trigom, the harp, the backpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigone, harp, backpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, except for three guys. And they have a different perspective on the matter. I want to give some principles here that I think are important as we, as we begin to just kind of walk through daniel chapter three so i just talked to you about the the failure of of my human power human wisdom and the failure of human gods and i want to talk about the futility of cultural worship because that's what's happening so nebuchadnezzar hears oh man that statue that that head is me and it's gold and everything else is iron and clay and woo, i am awesome how about I want to take this a step further? I'm just going to make a whole golden statue that's going to be dedicated to my image, the golden head in the dream. But I'm just going to make a big one, and everybody is going to worship it. Worship it, and he takes it further. So I want to I want to give three principles: why the futility. We can go to the next slide, Bailey, if you want to. Um, I want to share with you why there's a futility of cultural worship, why this is bad, what we've seen on the screen, and anything else. And I want to I show you why that there is a problem to worship idols. And the first one is simply this. Every idol, every idol, every false god flows from men's thoughts and men's inventions. They're just inventions from broken people. Now, incidentally, you don't have a 90-foot High, nine foot wide, seven story building. If you want to know how tall that is. Seven story building. Just in the middle of nowhere. By itself. You've got to have gold to be gathered. You've got to have a big huge kiln to melt the gold. Whatever that is. You've got to have shapes to make it into an image. And once all that's done, it can't walk out to the plain of Dura, stand itself up. It can't walk out there. It can't call to the people, here I am. It can't do anything. And so every idol, every false god has just come from the mind of people. And they're weak. Hear this. A God of significance cannot be made. Cannot be made. Cannot be made. Cannot be made. You cannot make a God of significance. There is only one God of great glory and significance. The God of glory exists in and of himself. Why is there so much brokenness in the world? Because you cannot make a God of significance to fix our hearts. All cultural gods flow from men's thoughts and inventions. Secondly, the image of the world, the images of the world, the false images, need ceremonies to begin their life. Why? Because they're just made by people in a factory. Or they're made in the middle of the plain of Dura. Some people believe that they, they brought this big... The mold and all that stuff out to the plain of Dura to build it there because how difficult it would be to bring it from Babylon out to the plain and to carry it out there. So they thought that they just brought it out there and this is the, the fire that the three guys are thrown into. The images of the world need ceremonies to begin their life. The four men probably knew about the construction that had been taking place. This would, this would have taken some time to build something that's 90 foot high made of solid gold and 9 foot wide, and I wonder what they talked about from time to time as this is being built, because you know that they would have talked about it and just would have thought about what in the world is happening and taking place. Note this, that this fake God needs lots of pomp and circumstance as it begins its purpose and it begins its so-called life. You know, when Jesus came... It was in the most humble of circumstances, deep humility, when Jesus came. A few shepherds out in the field got a message from some angels to go into Bethlehem and to see the glory of this happened. Listen to this. Everybody, everybody with me? Say amen if you're with me. Amen. Okay, listen to this. God doesn't need loud ceremonies. I remind us this morning, our God in and of himself exists, has always existed. Try this on our pea brains. He has never had a beginning point. God has never began. He just is. He is I am. So this morning, we could dance around. That's not us. Can you imagine Life Point Fellowship dancing around with tambourines? I'm not saying that any of that's wrong. I'm just saying this God doesn't need that. He doesn't need pomp and circumstance. What does God want? He wants hearts that are contrite and broken before Him, that authentically want to worship and glory in who He is. False gods that will take place in this country today in stadiums that have names and logos need lots of sound and applause and all of that. God needs none of it and deserves all of it though. Every bit of the worship. It's interesting when you read about the early church. Acts 2 42 says this. They devoted themselves. Listen to how, listen to how crazy they were. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching to fellowship to breaking of bread, most likely um, Lord's Supper, gathering around that, and the prayers. That's what they did. And they turned the first century upside down without a bunch of pomp and circumstance. Authentic, changed people walking with God. Here's the third thing about the futility of cultural worship is that it's just an idolatrous image it is not a living, real king. It's not real. To give it significance, they make it tall. They make it wide and expensive. But the issue is, it's not personal. It's been made by human hands over a period of time. And it can't do anything but stand there, The statue that's made. All it can do night and day, night and day, night and day, day and night, is stand there and do nothing. It can't speak. It can't reach out. It can't extend forgiveness. It cannot do anything. And when Jesus came, I said it earlier, our God came, and He was probably about 20 to 21 inches long. He was probably 8 pounds, 6 ounces, 8 pounds, 12 ounces. God came near in great humility. Not tall, not out there, and he came to love. I tell you, pride leads to wasteful extravagance over that which is not real. Bailey, would you put the next screen up? This is um, this is a real place. This is probably what it would have looked like. Part of this is still standing today. They believe. Go to the next slide. This is the remains, probably on the far left, top left there, of what the thing this is in the plain of Dura in, in um, Iraq today. Some of the ruins there, are probably where this stood. It was about 40. Foot, um, it was about 20 foot high, and it was about 40 foot wide. So this is probably where it was. This was a real place. This was a real thing, and it's futile to worship the images of the world. Did you notice how Nebuchadnezzar would get everybody to worship? You worship this or I'm throwing you into the fire. So so I I just want to remind us this morning, authentic worship is not coerced. It comes from the heart that loves the glory of God. And so so worship as coercion in a, a false ritual is not going to bring about any change in any significance. Worship is a matter of the heart. It's not... Ritual and Nebuchadnezzar has no idea about true worship. Forcing people to worship is not going to bring about authentic worship, and so, but he thinks that that is the case. The enemies of God are always going to make every effort to make idolatry seem normal, even in the church. But three guys. We don't know where Daniel is. We don't know if he's off on some official business. We have no idea where he is, but he's not around. And there are three guys out there, and they are not going to bow. Look with me in verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, they're the worship police, came forward and maliciously, maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the the horn and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the image. Verse 11, And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, burning, fiery furnace. But there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, they don't pay attention to you. They also don't serve your gods and they don't worship the golden image that you have set up. 13, Don't cross and angry, prideful, powerful person. They get mad. You ever had a boss like that? You ever had somebody? Boy, don't cross them. Look at 13. Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, "Um, Is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? So here I'm going to give you another chance. 15. Verse 15. Now, if you're ready, we're going to get the pomp and circumstance going again, because you've got to have music to honor God and honor my gods. We've got to to kind of get, get the mood going. Listen to church. Look up here. I love music. I love music. But if we have to have music to get us going to worship God, we've got problems. He's enough. Use music. Use prayer. Use fellowship. But God in and of himself, amen, is worthy of every ounce of energy that we give to magnify him. And so Nebuchadnezzar's like, we're gonna, we're gonna get the band going. And I'm giving you guys another chance to bow down. But if you do not worship, we're not gonna have a tribunal we're not going to core. You will be immediately cast, last part of 15, into a burning fiery furnace. Now note what he says here. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? I'm Nebuchadnezzar. There's not a God on the planet who can deliver you from me. Ha. We just lived through several years of powerful people mandating things to us in our lives and telling us what to do. We will continue to live with people mandating stuff to us, not just about that area, but it will continue to be the case because the gods of this world and Satan, the liar, is going to continue to make idol worship appear as normal as he can because if he can do that, then we will buy into the lie and we will not... Worship and exalt the living God. So they try to coerce them and to force them. And a challenge is made, and they are forced and they are challenged, and they just say this we refuse to make man the guide of our life. We're not doing this, Nebuchadnezzar. Secondly, we're gonna we're not gonna give our lives to what's false and, and not true. We are not going to serve your gods. Thirdly, we are going to refuse to exalt idols that are made up by men. We will not do that. And Nebuchadnezzar in rage brings them before him and and he gives them this other opportunity that they would kind of recant and do something different. You know, Luther, during the Reformation was brought to a place called the Diet of Worms. He was teaching that it was not works, it was not the Catholic Church that saved you. It was justification by faith in God alone. That was it. Christ was enough. And as he stood there on trial, he said, Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason... My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen, he said. In World War II, there was a guy, in World War I, there was a guy named Martin Niemoller and he... He was a great leader, and the German people, when that was over, held him in high esteem. Eventually, Hitler comes to power, and Niemöller knew exactly what Hitler was like. He could see through the facade, and he opposed. And as they, Hitler began to arrest people and put them in prison and concentration camps, Niemöller, this great hero of the German people, began to go to the prisons and concentration camps to visit the people and minister to them and to encourage them and to be there with them. Hitler knew that if he could convince Niemöller to come over to his side, it would help Hitler to not have as many problems as he was having as he was continuing to come to power. So he sent a former close colleague to Niemöller who had been arrested now was in prison himself for his opposition to Hitler. When the colleague came in prison to see if he could change Niemöller's mind and if, if Niemöller would now support the Nazi cause. When the man came to see him, the one-time friend said, Martin, Martin, why are you here? What are you doing here? To which Niemöller replied to him, my friend, my friend, why are you not here? Why are you not here? Taking a stand against what is evil. Church, there's a challenge and a choice to be made by us to have deep convictions to hold God in the highest honor. Look at verse 16 through 18 now. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery firm, furnace. And He will deliver us out of your hand. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So they had a couple of options before them. Everybody else is bowing. We can just bow once and then maybe we can slink out and figure out how do we make this work in the future. Let's just bow just once and then we can, you know, in our hearts, we can say, we don't really mean it. We don't really mean it. We don't really mean it, but we bow anyway and then we'll figure out what to do. That was one option. They could have thought to themselves, if we don't bow, we've got these significant positions, we're going to lose them. I mean, we are officials, people of power in a foreign country. But for the three men, there was no price nor any threat that would change who they were on the inside or their love for God. George Washington once said this, few men have the virtue to withstand the highest bidder. And I think in our lives, we just constantly offer stuff, offer stuff, offered stuff that would compromise our faith, and we must be aware of the drift. A great danger for us is that we would rationalize under pressure and drift from truth for matters of convenience or safety. But the supremacy of God matters in every matter, and their passion was that they would not give idolatry any kind of place in their lives. Deep-seated convictions inside the heart of God's people for their love from them Will lead and breed a great bravery among the people of God, and regardless of the external pressures that they were facing, it is the great trust in God that will sustain us in the midst of the pressure. And they have total confidence in God. They have, by the way, they have no known confidence, precedent, no known precedent, of anybody being thrown into the fire and surviving it. And yet they're going to trust anyway. So they have no hesitancy, hesitancy at all to give in and to bow. You see that in 16. They have no worry over God's authority to save. He can save. They know He can save. Verse 17, verse 18. As they do this, they're not demanding God that he's got to do what they want him to do. We need to hear this this morning. God is not our servant. We are God's servant. If it was the other way around, if God was our servant, we could just boss God around to do what we wanted Him to do whenever we wanted Him to do that. But we are servants. They get that and they realize this. And I say this, in every one of our lives, we need but-if-not statements. We need but-if-not when we come to places of pressure. And these men have that. They're like, we want you to understand and we want you to know that Nebuchadnezzar, you've got to do what you've got to do. You're the king. But we won't serve and we won't worship the golden image. Their faith was not threatened by a fire or a fired up king. They were going to keep their eyes on Jesus. I read a book a number of years ago and wrote down the quote in it. It's called Disappointment with God by Philip Yancey. And in that he writes, saints become saints by somehow hanging on to the stubborn conviction that things are not as they appear, and that the unseen spiritual world is as solid and trustworthy as the visible world around them. So Nebuchadnezzar, filled with fury, expression on his face changes. Verse 19 says, and he orders the three men after he's ordered it to be hotter seven more times hotter than what it was and he throws them in in the moment everything sometimes seems intensified doesn't it? The king has lost his self-control he can't be reasoned with anymore so he fires it up and what used what was Likely used to forge an idol, became the very place where the resolve of true followers' faith was forged. They were purified, and they give great evidence of their love of God. So they bound them up with ropes. They've got hats on, the scripture says here in Daniel 3. And they throw them into the fire, which would have hurt, I think, landing, not being able to balance yourself. They're wearing flammable clothing, thrown into the fire, thrown hard. And you can see that the men that throw them in there, it's so hot that they're burned up and it kills the soldiers that throw them in. We can see the outcome of the soldiers, they burn, and the outcome of the servants of God, they are preserved. I have good news this morning. God will preserve His people. He will preserve His people. In the fire, they don't feel the heat, they can breathe, they're walking, they're talking, they can stand and they can hear. And something unique happened. Nebuchadnezzar came to the door and he looked inside the door and they knew they threw three men in there, but there's four in the fire. Many people believe this is an Old Testament revelation of Jesus, that Jesus is in the fire with them. It's called a Christophany. Can you imagine what was conversation was taking place in the fire with the four? And if that's the Son of God walking in the midst of them. There is not a place in our lives where the living God cannot bring his sovereign presence to be real in our lives. Not a single place. And these men come to know that that it is the indwelling presence of God that makes every bit of difference in our lives. Sometimes, though, not everything works out perfectly. We can read it in history, we can read it in the Bible. Some faithful men and women cost them their lives. God kept them safe in this setting. And this is fully in line with what Isaiah previously wrote. Listen to these words, 43.2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. I wondered, did they quote this verse that afternoon? while they were in the fire. We can count on God's presence for He is with us. Now God has never, listen to this, we're almost done. God has never promised us to take us around the waters or to make sure the fire remained far away. But He did promise to be with us and to walk with us and to be with us and to get us through the other side. Now, that does not mean that every person who's persecuted survives the persecution. We know that's not true. And yet, it's interesting. In verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered astounding words. This pagan king, who's got 3,600 gods who can't help him, said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Listen to this pagan king. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they shall be torn torn from limb to limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is, listen to this, Nebuchadnezzar says this, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. The living God is different. And it is at this moment when Nebuchadnezzar discerns and discovers how small he is before Yahweh. He's different. The king goes from great anger to great adoration and affirmation of God. God is the supreme one who reigns over all. So what resulted from this? This world finish. What resulted from this? Keep in mind, Nebuchadnezzar has been snatching up the nations for years now and brought them back to Babylon. And so you've got all these people groups who have different deities that are there. He's captured the people of Judah, whose God is Yahweh. And what he learns on this day is this, is that Yahweh is greater than the gods of the Babylonians and all the other gods of the people that are there. Because there is no God, there is no God who saves and rescues this way. Secondly, Nebuchadnezzar learns this, not only is Yahweh greater than the gods of the Babylonians, but that Judah's God is not dead. Though they've been captured, and though they've been brought to Babylon, their God is not dead. He's not dependent upon his people for existence and pomp and circumstance. He is the living God. And he reigns. And Nebuchadnezzar sees it in that moment. And those of you watching at home, come next week, but I'm going to leave the screen. <clears throat> there has never, ever been a God who has rescued like this. Never. And as Nebuchadnezzar makes this statement, it's a picture that our God will continue to do that. Because why? Our God is the rescuing God. He is the saving God. And He can be trusted because He came and He knows and He's powerful and He's so kind, so loving, He is so good, He is so personal that He changes and transforms people like us. So I point to it again today. Look at it. Look at it, church. And hear Nebuchadnezzar's words. There is no other God able to rescue by the cross. Praise His name. Exalt His name today for the King that He is and the Savior that Jesus is. Let's pray.